invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. You may be, uh, we're expecting the book of Revelation as I, last Sunday night, so we're going to be getting into that. And uh, Lord willing, we, we are going to be doing that. Uh, this morning, I wanted to go to 1 Timothy 3. Uh, in the, I've made it a sort of a common practice over the years to start the new year um, with a, just talking about the church, sort of our life together as God's people, why we're here, what's our mission, who we are, uh, and we're going to be getting into that in more detail, of course, when we get into Revelation, since the, um, the book of Revelation starts with letters to the churches, and so looking forward to that. But this morning, I'm going to look at a specific uh, issue and uh, in the life of our church together. I'm turning to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you just notice, um, Paul this, writes this letter to Timothy, who is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And uh, a church that Paul knew very well, loved dearly. Uh, he he um, cares for this, this, this congregation. He spent about three years planting this church. And they're in a very dark place. Uh, Ephesus is a capital, is a principal city, a Roman city in Asia Minor. Uh, if you'd come into the harbor of Ephesus, uh, right there on the, uh, the hill leading up away from the sea is this magnificent temple to Diana, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And uh, it dominates everything about Ephesus. Socially, economically, and spiritually, uh, Ephesus is defined by this pagan temple where there's uh, incredible pagan, perverse uh, worship taking place. And Paul's writing to this little pl- church plant, this, uh, this church of the living God, and encouraging them. And so in uh, chapters um, 1, he just reminds us of the gospel. Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost, chapter 2, um, that prayers and intercessions be made. This is to be a praying church. And then in verses 8 and following, the, how, how that prayer should look in worship, roles for men and women in that. Chapter 3, qualifications for leadership. This is a household. It has leaders, elders and deacons. And, and uh, what should those men look like and be like? And then we get to our text beginning at verse 14. And we'll be looking specifically at verses 14 and 15. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Our God and Father, we thank you so much that your word is a lamp to our feet. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you speak to us and instruct us. You are the head of the church. And so we, Lord, receive your teaching and instruction this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in it. We'd be edified, uh, for that is your desire. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There is nothing in uh, all the world like the church of Jesus Christ. It is unlike, um, vastly unlike anything else uh, that exists in creation. 
Uh, many people assume that the Christian church is just another version of this strange human desire to worship things or to create gods to make themselves feel better, more, uh, more comfortable or sec- uh, secure in life. And the, the Christian church is just a different branch of that, different, a different sort of model of that. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, we are not a man-made social institution. We're not even just a religious institution. The church is the household of the living God. Uh, the church is uh, the place where God actually dwells with His people. That's not a marketing slogan. It's biblical reality and truth. And in our text this morning, Paul uh, reminds the readers here of, uh, in, in the church in Ephesus and the churches where it would be shared of the unique glory and privileges that belong to the church and then the, uh, the important ramifications that that has for the behavior of the church. Uh, It's helpful when a gospel writer or or a writer of Scripture tells us why he's writing. John uh, tells in uh, the end of his gospel, I write these things uh, so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in Him. That's that's helpful. We know why he's writing the gospel of John. Uh, Paul tells us why he's writing these things. In verse 14, I'm writing these things so that you may know how to behave in the household of God. Our identity as the church has ramifications for our behavior within the church as the people of God. And so we'll be studying that this morning, the identity of the church and then the the appropriate behavior of the church. Uh, One of the things that I love about the Apostle Paul is his unremitting passion for the church of Jesus Christ. If, If you ask Paul, what do you... What do you do? Uh, his, his job description would be, I do everything I can uh, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that churches are planted. And then after that church is planted, I continue to preach the gospel so that churches are built up and strengthened in the faith. And so if you read the book of Acts, you'll see Paul doing those two things. He goes and preaches and plants churches, and then he goes back and revisits those church plants to strengthen them in the faith, and all in the same way through the proclamation of the gospel. He loves the church, and he's willing to suffer incredibly for the church. He'll get beaten up or whipped in one town for preaching the gospel, and he'll take maybe a few days to heal, and then he limps into the next town and goes right back to work. Paul is driven with a passion to plant healthy, Christ-centered, gospel-focused, spirit-filled churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his intent is then, in writing these letters to the churches, is to build up the church. He wants to see the church continually conform to the image of Christ, both in their theology and in their practice. And so Paul's letters always contain a teaching about biblical doctrine and truth and the gospel, and then implications and what this means for the practice of the church. Well, here in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul once again reminds the church in Ephesus of who they are. He told the, uh, if you remember in Acts chapter 20, when he met with the Ephesian elders for the very last time, he would never see them again. He left them with the words, take care um, to protect the flock of God, uh, which he purchased with his very own blood. 
That's how Paul thinks of the church. It's a people that belong to God, the sheep of God, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. There's an incredible preciousness to the church. And here in 1 Timothy 3, he reminds them of who they are. If you ask people um, to define the word church uh, today, um, most people would think that it's a, either a building, uh, it's where people gather to worship, or they would think it's just a, uh, an institution, an organization, a religious organization. When Paul thinks of church, he thinks of a household of God, the church of the living God, the, the ecclesia called out people of God, and a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's what we see in verse 14. And let's just take a moment to remind ourselves of what it means to be a church, a church of the Lord Jesus. We are, first of all, the household of God. Household is a very familiar concept in the world of that day. It would involve not just uh, those who are uh, related to one another by blood, but all those who are under the head uh, of uh, the head of the household. So if you're a servant, slave, um, you belong to that household along with family members. A household is, def- is defined by uh, these clearly defined relationships and roles and rules And every household or family would have its own unique rules or roles. One of the things that, uh, boys and girls, uh, there are rules in your home, right? That uh, things that are just sort of uh, belong to what it means to be a part of your family. So uh, maybe there's rules about dinner table manners, right? You're not allowed to have your elbows on the table. You you don't talk with your mouth full. Uh, Eat what's on your plate. And then maybe you go to Johnny's house. And Johnny's got his elbows all over the table, and, uh, and Johnny clearly hasn't heard the rule about uh, eating with his mouth full, and um, leaves his plate, um, you know, half eaten. Thinking, I'd like to live at Johnny's house. But see, that's just a different, that's a different family, different rules. You have, you have your own family, and the head of your house, mom and dad, get to determine what the rules are, and how this family's going to be structured and organized. Well, when Paul thinks of a household, <clears throat> the church... He thinks of a spiritual household. And there's a head to this household, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus has given us defined rules and roles and relationships. And and Paul in his letters talks about those things. Here in 1 Timothy 1, um, this is to be a praying household. That's to define the church of God. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. It's to be, um, there there are specific roles for men and women in worship. So he talks about what that's supposed to look like in chapter 2, verse 8 through 15. There are requirements and responsibilities for elders and deacons. How, this, how is this house put together? That's chapter 3. We're a household, a family of God. And that's the stunning part of it. Of God defines the uniqueness of the church. It means that, that God lives here. He's creating the church to be his his home, his dwelling place. Ephesians, uh, when Paul's writing the letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 2.22, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit of God. God is at work making harvest a place where he dwells with his people and where he exercises his loving rule Uh, We're his household, you are his children, the people sitting around you are your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And so how we live together and behave in, in this household matters because it's God's household. It's a wonderful thing to be the household of God. We're the church, secondly, of the living God. Remember, here's this little church planted in Ephesus. The temple dominates everything, but it is a temple erected to a dead stone idol, Diana. She doesn't talk, she doesn't see, she doesn't hear. And all these people are flocking into the temple of Diana to worship Diana. And Paul says, look at what you are. You are the church, the called out ones. Churches, the Greek is ecclesia, called out, called by God, out of the darkness of death, called to life, called to belong to Jesus. When you hear the word church, you should hear the echoes of the sovereign, eternal call of God the Father. You're the church of the living God. The living God. That's why there's nothing like the church. It's utterly unique because of its unrivaled, unparalleled relationship to the living God. You know, one of the dangers, one of the problems with growing up in the church or, or being long in the church is, is you get used to it. And we, and we miss the drama and the glory of it, the most blessed thing that could ever happen to you is to be brought into the church of the living God. Because outside of the church of the living God, there is death, eternal death, and judgment, and condemnation. Jesus did not come into a world of basically good people to help them sort of straighten out some things in their life or just to make it a bit more comfortable. He came into a lost world. And he came to a world under judgment and the condemnation of God because of their sin. And Jesus Christ came and created a space called the, the gospel, right, by his, by his life and death and resurrection where sinners could come out from death into life, into light, into joy, into peace. And that's happened, right, if you are... If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a true member then of the church of Jesus Christ. It's the most beautiful thing that could happen to you and the most wonderful thing that could be said of you is that you belong to the household of God. And this magnificent thing called the church has a great mission. And Paul speaks of that when he talks about the pillar and buttress of the truth. What truth? Well, the truth concerning Jesus. That's, that's the truth the church is committed to Paul immediately speaks of that in summary confessional form in verse 16, if you have your Bible. It seems to be one of the early confessions of the church about Jesus. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. He was born of the Virgin Mary, lived and died as a man. He was vindicated by the Spirit. When did that happen? What does vindicated mean? Well, it means that the, the Holy Spirit of God gave all sorts of evidences and proof that Jesus Christ really was the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. So the Spirit descended upon him in, as a dove. Um, the Spirit empowered his ministry. So Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, went into the wilderness and, def and defeated the devil's temptations. And full of the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus cast out demons and, uh, and raised the dead and healed the lepers full of the Holy Spirit. And we're told the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Peter says that very specifically in his first epistle. 
The Spirit, by all of that, vindicating that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was and is the divinely sent Savior of sinners. So he was vindicated by the Spirit of God, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. The gospel was running and people were, by the power of God, being drawn to it. And this Jesus was taken up into glory, where he reigns as Lord. So one of the early confessions of the church was simply Jesus is Lord. That's the truth the church is called to proclaim. You you see, friends, we're about really magnificent things as the church of God. We live in this temporal age with a message for eternity, a message that that matters for where people will spend their, their eternal life, right, or death. Nothing matters more. Uh, we, are, we are the church, the people in this world called by God to adorn and uphold and support this truth about Jesus. It's interesting when Paul speaks about the pillar of, a truth, of truth. What does a pillar do? Well, if you look at the Temple Diana, you'd know what pillars do. It, it has 127 pillars all around each about 70 feet tall, and and they're all there to hold up this majestic roof of solid marble. That's what pillars do. They hold up, and they adorn and beautify the building. And, And Paul says to this little church, you're the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress support of truth, that the mission given to the church by God is to witness to, uphold, support all the truth about God in Jesus Christ. So to witness to the all-sufficient work of Jesus and the all-surpassing worth of God the Father, it's what the church does in the world. It's why we're here. And it is precisely (coughs) because the church is what it is, the household of God, And because the church has the mission that it has from God to to adorn and support, promote the truth of Jesus Christ and the truth of God, that's why behavior matters. If, If the church was anything else or anything less, Paul would not be remotely concerned of how it behaves, but because our identity is what it is as the people of God, and our mission is what it is given to us by God. Well, then he writes, I'm writing so that you might know how to one ought to behave in the household of God. And that, of course, boys and girls, that doesn't mean how one ought to behave in the church building. It means how one ought to behave as the people of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. The church's, if you read Paul's letters, you'll realize that the church's identity and mission come together in a profound way in worship, in public corporate worship. In a sense, it's where we experience our privilege as we commune with God. It's where we um, proclaim in our songs and prayers and through the preaching the, the value of Christ, the value of God and the gospel. It's It's... And that's why, you see, Paul, in all of his letters, will have something to say about worship. Paul's vision for the church, which is just the Holy Spirit's vision, is that the worship would happen in such a way that the world would, would 
uh, would watch and see and hear and then fall down on their face and say, God is really among you. That's the vision. God is here. That's what Paul wants the world to see when they watch the worship of the church and to be convicted of this, that there is a living God and that living God is present in power in this community called the church. And so he will often reference uh, the, the necessity of a certain type of worship. I think uh, 1 Corinthians is probably the best example of this. Some of you have been studying uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And Paul takes chapters 11 through 14 specifically to talk about how to behave in worship. So chapter 11, verse 1 through 16 talks about head coverings in worship, why that matters, what that looks like. Chapter 11, verse 17 through the end, behavior at the Lord's table. Some people are coming and getting drunk, and then the guy at the next table over comes and has nothing to eat. And Paul says, I don't know what you're doing. I can just tell you it's not the Lord's table that you're celebrating. Go home if you need to eat, right? When you come together, there's something that's supposed to be happening that testifies to your uh, confidence in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and your love for one another. And he gives instructions on that. Had to be a little unsettling for some of them as they receive this letter and it's read aloud. And maybe eyes go over to Mr. So-and-so who, oh yeah, I think Paul might be talking about him. But Paul speaks of it because it matters. Chapter 12, the use of spiritual gifts in the body. Chapter 13, the necessity of love. If we don't love each other, we're just a, a sounding gong, a clanging, noisy, irritating symbol. Shut it off if we don't love each other. Chapter 14, the practice of prophecy in tongues in an orderly manner. Paul spends a great deal of time do, uh, talking about how to go about um, use of spiritual gifts and, 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 and prophecy. Why? Because, you see, his goal, verse 25, is for the unbeliever to be convicted in his heart. And when, it, when, when everybody jabbering at once, a clear message is not being presented. The word of God is not being heard, and that man is not going to be convinced that God is really among you. So chapter 40, he wraps it up. All things should be done decently and in order. Why? Because it's God's household. And it's not loving or helpful to have chaos in God's household. It, it disrupts the mission. It doesn't testify to the truth of who we are and who God is. And we're called, you see, to worship in a way that, that, that says something about the value of God and the gospel and the mission that God has given to us as the church. And so when we come together in worship, love must be on display. Real love, gracious, forbearing, and forgiving love. Uh, as we celebrate the Lord's, top, Lord's Supper together, genuine uh, concern for um, the reality of our sin, humility, and yet a confident holding on to Jesus Christ and loving each other, our brothers and sisters. Uh, as we use our spiritual gifts, as we speak and sing and worship, love and truth and grace has to characterize our worship because we're the church, we're the household of God. And so there's, it's, it's very important that we behave as the church of God for the edification of our brothers and sisters and for a convincing witness to the watching world. Now, just as Paul applies uh, those principles in very specific ways, as we see particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter um, 
11 through 14, I think it's going to be helpful to us to apply this very practical, specific way here at Harvest Church, the household of God right here. Because there's a matter where I believe um, we are falling short of our calling uh, to love each other and to honor God. Uh, And I'm specifically talking about uh, the distraction and disorder that's uh, so often caused by excessive, unnecessary traffic flowing in and out of the auditorium while the church is gathered in worship. Now, some of you are thinking, well, you know, he's just left preaching and gone on to meddling. And um, uh, I would just remind you, if this, if, the, the goal here is, is not to harangue, but taking the reality of who we are, the reality of the mission that we have, what it means to be together in worship, Um, This is simply from the Word of God a call for us to love each other well in a very specific, practical way. Uh, So this is not a gripe or personal reference uh, preference wrapped up in a sermon. I I think it actually matters. I think it matters uh, a lot. Actually, Uh, it matters how we love each other. It matters how we um, that what our behavior says about the value of God and and um, and how we're going to love each other and our visitors. See, uh, distractions, unnecessary distractions in worship undermine the mission, undermine our calling. A few months ago, I had the privilege of sitting in the back row. Obviously, I'm usually up front. Uh, I don't get that distracted when I'm preaching. Um, I'm sort of zoned in, and so half the congregation could probably leave, and I um, I, I wouldn't probably register it. But if you're sitting in the back row... Every single person that leaves has to go out one of those doors. Um, I, was, I was astounded by the traffic. You would, you would need superhuman powers of concentration uh, to avoid being distracted. Uh, some of you sit up front exactly for that reason. Uh, which is, you know, most churches have difficulty getting people sitting up front, so maybe we should be thankful for uh, the little things. But I, I think this really matters. Um, but I want to put this in the context of the things that we value at Harvest Church. What do we value? We, um, we value joyful, exuberant worship. Uh, when, I, when I walk in, in, into the church and I see people chatting and talking, um, uh, happy to see each other, the spirit of excitement about coming together and worship, I think that's biblical. Worship the Lord with gladness, Psalm 100, verse 2. Rejoice in our King, Psalm 149, verse 2. Um, that our worship ought to reflect the worship of heaven, which is a joyful assembly of angels and saints, Hebrews 12, 22. And that joyful assembly of heaven should be reflected in the joyful assembly here on earth. I love it when visitors come and say, it's, uh, I just noticed how happy people seem to, to be here and how, uh, how joyful uh, the, the sense of it is. That's exactly correct. If we understand the gospel and the privilege that's ours, and if we're looking forward to be fed by our Lord Jesus and to worship him, joy should be uh, uh, clearly defining uh, the, the attitude and, and what we're doing. So nothing that, I, that I'm wanting to say here uh, is an argument for silent and stiff. Some of you grew up in silent and stiff. Uh, that's, not, that's not what Paul's after. That's not the point. Right, The worship that Paul has in mind is radiant with love and full of Christ and surging with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is appropriately reverent and orderly. And the two are not at war with each other. So we value joyful worship. 
We value, secondly, children. We need to, you know, we recognize we have a unique animal here at Harvest Church. There are not many churches this size with these many children. Praise the Lord. It's an incredible stewardship that God has given to us, a gift that God has given to us. One of the the greatest signs of the kindness of the Lord to us as a church is the number of children we have as a church. That's from the Word of God. And we love then our children, and we love having children in worship. As you know, many churches um, have the children leave for children's church. That makes total sense to me if, if we're thinking about the benefit of the adults. It allows moms and dads with little ones to actually pay attention and listen to the sermon. Come, we, we understand that. Um, however, we do not believe it's the most beneficial for the children. The things we learn at our earliest ages are the things that get most deeply ingrained in our psyche. And we want communal, corporate worship ingrained in the souls and minds of our young children. Uh, You don't have to look hard on the internet to find articles about uh, young people leaving the church when they get uh, out of high school and go off to college. Pundits are wondering, why is this, why this um, rapid, the children just leaving the church? Some say as high as 70% of young people who grow up in the church um, do not attend after they go off to college. Mike Horton just makes a sobering point that many of these children were never actually in church to begin with. They were passed from nursery to children's church, a junior high church, and then high school church, and never experienced multi-generational corporate communal worship of the church. I'm sure there are other reasons for the problem, but that could easily be one of them. I'm just, as a, as a child born and raised in the church, I'm, I'm so thankful that, that I was made to sit in services Sunday morning and Sunday evening and see the church at worship. I got to listen to old seats of Springsma bellow out the hymns. And on the high notes, he would just start here and just keep moving until he got there. <laughs> and I'll never forget that. And Oscar Poole, who uh, lost his wife, and he was a, just a gentle, quiet old man, and, and he, would, he, would be, he was the man in the church who would say, Amen. Which I thought was a little charismatic, but I liked it. <clears throat> he loved Jesus, and that was, that was really evident. I got to listen to Dad sing bass to all the, all the hymns and psalms. Saw him wipe away tears several times during the Lord's Supper. I would have missed all of that in children's church, the things that have been most deeply ingrained in my psyche. And so we believe that the best children's church is the church where they're worshiping with their mom and dad or or with their parent, if you're a single parent, experiencing the presence of Christ, experiencing the whole body of Christ. And we know, parents, that it's it's a challenge for you. I just want to thank you publicly for your labors. Um, thank you for bringing your children to church and to worship. Thank you for, for your work to, to keep distractions at a minimum. I just am so thankful for our young families. I love seeing children here, and I love the way that um, our, our young families are raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If you'd like, if you're just interested in, in young, as parents, how to, how to maybe do this better, there's a nice little book called Parenting in the Pew. We used to have copies. I looked this morning. Uh, we don't anymore. But Parenting in the Pew, if you'd like one, maybe even just let us know, and I can direct you to that. 
or just give some very practical tips on, on how to help boys and girls. We have a children's bulletin given to help boys and girls concentrate. Uh, but but um, nothing that I say in this message isn't in any way undermines the high, high value we place on children being in worship with, with their parent. But one of the things that we do, I do want to communicate, because another value that we have, you see, is worship. Uh, one of the dis- distinctives of the Reformed Church is the great value that we actually do place on public worship. We believe that God is really, truly present. And that God is powerfully at work through our prayers and praises and preaching, through the sacraments. They are really, truly means of grace. Means whereby God promises to communicate his saving faith and grace to us. And so nothing that we do in life matters more than public worship. Not your work, not your, uh, not your family, not, um, not any hobbies that you might have, not sleeping, Nothing, no, there's nothing you do in life that has more eternal significance and value than gathering together as God's people in worship. And that's why distractions matter. It's exactly the, the significance of the worship event that moved the, the formers of the Westminster um, uh, Catechisms and Confessions back in the 1600s, right, the Reformed men are thinking about how to reform the, the church according to the Word of God in its theology and, in its, and its practice. So they wrote the Confession of Faith dealing with theology. They wrote the Directory for Public Worship dealing with the practice of the church. And in the Directory for Public Worship, they, they testify to the great value of worship. It begins with a discussion about the principles and nature of worship. Let me read this to you. An assembly of public worship is not merely a gathering of God's children with each other, but It, before all else, is a meeting of the triune God with his covenant people. In the covenant, God promises his children that he will dwell with them as their God and they will be his people. That's what we're about in public worship. And then they say, pastors and elders, you're to instruct the congregation uh, to... to, Uh, Let me just read it. Pastors and ruling elders are to endeavor to inculcate in themselves and the congregation expectations for and attitudes concerning and behavior during public worship, which are appropriate to the glorious fact that public worship is covenantal communion between God and his people in his public ordinances. That's why it matters. And so they go on and they talk about distractions. By the spirit of the exalted Christ, God draws near to his people and they draw near to their God. Accordingly, the whole congregation should assemble promptly. Showing up on time helps people concentrate. That all may be present and may join together for the entire worship service. Unless necessary, none should depart until after the benediction. All should refrain from any behavior that would distract other worshipers or detract from their communion with God. Now, when I read that, I said, what, that sounds like something. What does that sound like? And then it struck me, what that sounds like is the announcement you get right before the movie starts. Right? You see the message. They even play little videos about this. Right? Cute little videos. Um, please turn off your cell phone. Now, what right do they have to tell you to turn off your cell phone? Well, they're just asking you to respect the artistic value of the movie, which is more or less, obviously, but more importantly, to respect your neighbor. They paid good money for this. They, they, they're here to enjoy the show, and, and so just out of common respect for your neighbor, you turn your cell phone off, and it's right to do that. 
Well, brothers and sisters, how much more should we respect God's drama of redemption that's displayed before us in the songs and the preaching and the sacraments of worship? Where God is engaged and God is speaking and showing to us the truth of who he is and what he's done in Jesus Christ. And how much more should we respect the desires of those who came to worship because they are desperate to hear a word from God. We want people coming into the building hungry. Desperate to hear from God. Desperate to be in communion with God. Longing to confess their sin and, and hanging on to the, the prayers and the praises, the songs that are offered up and, and soaking in the preaching of the word. God and his people are having a conversation. We teach our young children when, when mommy and daddy are having a conversation or mommy's having a conversation with someone else, you don't just come and, and, and barge in. You don't disrupt that conversation. Well, how much more careful should we be than when God and his people are having a conversation? It should matter. Because worship matters. There's something so precious about the time we have together as the Lord is meeting with us and, and we have a responsibility to do everything that we can to avoid unnecessary distractions. And, and that word unnecessary matters. There's a difference between necessary and unnecessary. As I said, um, let me give you an example of some necessary distractions. Removing yourself or a child due to illness. That's necessary. If you're, um, no explanation needed. Removing a child who's making too much noise or melting down or needs some daddy time or mommy time. That's, that's necessary. That's good. And again, nothing I say. If, if, uh, I don't want a single young parent here to be squirming, uh, thinking, if it's necessary, you, you, you go and we love you. Um, so any sort of emergency that has to be attended to right, is necessary. Well, what are unnecessary distractions? Well, this is, you know, Paul will sometimes say, not I, uh, not the Lord, but I, Paul. Um, so we don't have, I can't give you a text for this, but let me give you some things at least to think about. Getting up to get a drink of water. I think that's unnecessary. Um, we've not lost, in the 24 years I've been here, we've not lost a single child to dehydration. <laughs> so, boys and girls, uh, just don't ask. You know, can I have a drink of water? The answer is, no. Uh, maybe a little candy to help. Uh, we'll, you know, we love you, boys and girls. Um, students, uh, we love all of you. Drink uh, your, whatever slight discomfort you're experiencing because you, you're, you're thirsty, you're, you're going to be fine. And you get to bless the rest of the congregation by just staying seated. It matters. Um, if there's... Um, you know, the vast majority, no, there's no rule. We're not going to have necessary police in the foyer to, you know, to examine you when you walk out. This is something we do together. But because worship matters, this matters. The vast majority of those between the ages of 6 and 60 don't need a potty break. Now, if you, again, we're just talking about, I think some of it is just sort of pattern or habit or, or, or maybe boredom. So, so, so children, are just, they just need to stretch their legs or, or out of boredom want to take a walk. Those are the sorts of things we just want to really think about and prayerfully say no to. They're unnecessary. It's not necessary. 
What's important is that, we, is that you remember, that we remember. You see, a constant stream of people. And you might think, well, it's just me. Yeah, but it's just you and everybody else who thinks it's just them. So a constant stream of people exiting and reentering worship is a true, relentless distraction to your brothers and sisters in Christ who are attempting to worship the Lord. It matters. If it matters in the movie theater, it matters in the house of God. And we're not loving each other or our visitors well when we unnecessarily distract them in worship. Now, love goes both ways. Love goes both ways. In other words, love doesn't only apply to those who are thinking about leaving and wondering if this qualifies. Love also goes to all the rest. So that that there's a great deal of kindness and patience and forbearing with each other. And that, and that any judgmental spirit that you might have when someone gets up is, is sin and to be rebuked. We bear with each other. That's what love does. And so it goes both ways. Both the concern of those who do not want to unnecessarily distract and love goes to the, to, to the rest of the body that you guard your heart. And when that, when that maybe young uh, mom gets up and leaves with her children, I just hope in your heart there is gushing forth blessing and praise and thanksgiving. Thank God you're here. When, when, when a family maybe comes from the community and they're not used to raising their kids in church, I just hope that when, they, when they're dealing with that, that there's just an, an ocean of love and, and thanks. I'm so thankful you're here. That no one feels shame in this. The call is to all of us. How should we behave in the household of God? We should behave so that it's evident that we are a church where Jesus Christ lives and dwells and his love is evident and we are a church that's serious about the worship of God because God matters and we're serious about the worship of God because the mission matters. And we want to do everything that we can to promote and adorn the beauty of this gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for allowing us to be the church. Uh, What a privilege we have Sunday after Sunday to come together as a family of God to meet with you, the living God. And I thank you, Lord, for the calling that you've given us together to worship in a way that manifests the all-sufficiency of Christ and the all-surpassing worth of God. And God, we, Lord, we desire to grow in this together, to walk together in love and truth. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the privilege of, of worship that resonates with the love and truth and grace of Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit so that when people come, they fall in their face in conviction and and have to confess that God is here. Not because we're such good people, because you are such a great God. And our worship shows the value and and your, your voice is heard and your praises are lifted up from hearts that are being revived. So Lord, bless us. I, I thank you, Lord, that you have made us a church. I thank you, Lord, for every, every person. And, and I thank you, Lord, that we get to do this together in love and truth and humility and grace so that Jesus Christ gets the praise. That's our desire. We pray in his name. Amen.
Let's sing together number 355 from the hymnal, We Are God's People, Called to Obey Him. Let's stand together and close in song.